The text for our sermon this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. This time we'll call the kids forward. Well, the verses that we just read tell us three very important things. The first thing that they tell us is that God is in control of all things. He created the world and everything in it, and so all things are under His control. But He also made us to have faith in Jesus, and that means that God is in control of our future too. Sometimes the world can be a scary place. There are a lot of bad people who do a lot of bad things. So it is a great comfort to God's children to know that God is in control and that He is watching over His children. But the truth is, we too are bad people and do a lot of bad things, and God is in control there too. He saved us from our sins, which is something no one else could do. No king, no hero, no angel, no warrior. Only Jesus can save us from our sins. And He did it without anybody's help, not even ours. God doesn't need anyone's help to rule the world. Our verses say that God did not trust the world to come, which means the future, to angels. In other words, God only trusts Jesus to guard the future of His children and of His church. The second thing our verses teach us is that Jesus is greater than all the kings and heroes and angels of the Old Testament. And that Jesus did what they couldn't do even while He was living on earth as a man. King David and his son, King Solomon, were two of the greatest heroes of God's people who ever lived. God used them to do many great things. But neither man, although they had strong armies and lots and lots and lots of riches, neither one of them could save God's people from their sins. And The Bible even tells us stories about how these two men did some really terrible things committed terrible sins against God. They couldn't protect other people from sin because they couldn't even protect themselves, even though they were powerful warriors with strong armies. But Jesus saved His people from their sins even while He was living a simple life as a poor man. When Jesus was born, His first bed was a box that sheep eat hay out of. Throughout His life, people said and did many mean things to Jesus. And He never did wrong to anyone. And in the end, Jesus was beaten up really bad and then nailed to a cross to die. But even in that bad condition, Jesus did more than Moses or David or Solomon or any angel could ever do. That's how great Jesus is. And the third thing that our verses teach us is that Jesus rules over all things for His people. The word that the Bible uses for God's love to His people is grace. Grace means that God loves His people. The Bible teaches us this by calling God's people sheep. 
God's enemies are called wolves. God loves his children and protects them from wolves that would try to harm their souls. The Bible also teaches this when it talks about marriage. Now, of course, you're too young to understand about marriage, but you can certainly understand that your mom and dad love each other. Your dad doesn't love any other woman, and your mom doesn't love any other man. And the Bible says that Jesus loves his church like a man should love his wife. Grace also means that we cannot do anything to earn God's love. Earn means that you work for it. So if someone says to you, if you clean up all the leaves in my yard, I'll give you some money. And when you get the money, you've earned it. You worked for it. But God's grace is not earned. It is a gift. And lastly, grace saves. Now, save means to rescue, right? We're all sinners, and we all need to be saved from our sins. Otherwise, we will not go to heaven with Jesus. God's grace is the only thing that saves because it's the only thing that can save. Jesus, in his love, finds God's lost children. And he rescues them from their sins, even when they don't really want to be rescued. And he protects them forever. Now, we'll pray, and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our series through Hebrews. And our text is part of a segment that is preparing us to dive deep into the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Many people have called Hebrews a commentary on Leviticus. And that's a pretty fair assessment, I think. Our text today and for at least the next Sunday and maybe after that, will be preparing us for this trek through the religion of the Old Testament. Now to do this, our text shows us Jesus in His incarnation as a man capable of suffering and dying. Our text shows us Jesus' superiority even in His state of humiliation. Laid in a feeding trough, hungry and thirsty from 40 days fasting in the wilderness, Weary from walking in the hot sun, punched, slapped, scourged, and nailed to a cross and displayed in open shame, Jesus is still greater than Moses and the prophets, greater than either human messengers or heavenly messengers, greater than the temple, the altar, the incense, and all the sacrifices put together. Our outline then is as follows. Number one, the success of the gospel. Number two, Christ's superiority in his state of humiliation, and thirdly, the reign or the rule of grace. So our first point, the success of the gospel. The success of the gospel is not entrusted to God's messengers, but to Christ. The world to come, in our text, refers to the church's future state of glory. God has not entrusted the success of the gospel to men. The, the growth of God's kingdom is under His sovereign control. Paul teaches this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verses 5-7, through 7, where he says, Who then is Paul, 
and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Notice, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He's saying that all the planting and watering in the world accomplishes nothing if God does not grant life. That's clearly what he means because when he repeats himself, he does it in these words. Neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. In other words, the success of the gospel has not been entrusted to ministers. The success of the gospel is in the hands of Jesus. I'm reminded of a famous quote by Martin Luther in which he explained the success of the Reformation in the face of so much opposition. He says, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no, like, no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. It is God that qualifies a man for service. I don't doubt that for a second. And while I would certainly never insist that all ministers obtain a PhD, I would insist that the general rule, the general principle is that ministers should undergo a thorough course of ministerial education. What I'm saying is that there's, no con there's nothing contradictory in God calling a man to ministry and the man getting himself prepared for it by obtaining a proper theological education. But in the minds of many people, those things are contradictory. And this is because people so often arrogate to themselves the responsibility for the success of the Gospel. So in their minds, uh, people are perishing. And instead of trying to save them, I'm over here huddled in the corner with my egghead textbooks trying to learn Greek. But you see, the salvation or damnation of any soul is not the responsibility of any minister. Ministers are called to warn those who are perishing and to teach and encourage those who are being saved. But the salvation of a soul belongs to God alone. He works all things according to the pleasure of His will. And therefore, a man who thrusts himself unprepared into the work of the ministry will never be able to do his job properly. And that's why... All across the globe, pulpits are filled with men who preach the law and not the gospel. Every sermon that tells you what you have to go and do to be successful, to develop your full potential, to achieve your dreams, to attain your goals, is really just giving you the law and not the gospel. When the point of the message is what you have to go and do to get the most bang for your buck, so to speak, from the Christian life, you're getting the law, not the gospel. Here's what I mean. The law only blesses you if you obey it always and perfectly. The second you deviate from the least precept of the law, you are a guilty transgressor, and all the law can give you is judgment. But since we all come into this world as sinners, there is no hope for anyone to be saved by the law. Paul argues this point extensively in Romans and Galatians. And this fact is assumed here in Hebrews. Salvation cannot come by the law because the law was never intended to save. Salvation comes by grace. And so while the law says, do this and live, 
The Gospel says live because Christ has done this for you. That's clearly, that's what's meant by that word impute that we use so frequently. Jesus was born without sin. So he didn't start out in the bottomless pit of debt to God that we're all born into. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law in thought, word, and deed. And this perfect obedience of Christ's is what God counts as ours when he plants us into Christ. If that's not good news, there's no such thing as good news. Everything about salvation lies outside the power of man. And that's good news too. Since as our catechism teaches us, we are prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor, we would never of our own accord choose God. If God had not chosen me, I would never be saved because I would never have chosen Him. And that's not a humble brag or a piece of cute self-deprecation. That's just gospel truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, let's apply this to our current situation. It is easy to fret and worry about how bad things are or how bad things are becoming. But the success of the Gospel is not in our hands. It's in Christ's. Which means all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are the called according to His purpose. Whether things get better or worse in our lifetime is beside the point. Nothing is happening that God has not ordained to happen for His own glory. Throughout world history, empires and nations have risen and fallen, but the kingdom of God marches on. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That preposition of refers to its origin or its source. The kingdom of God does not owe its existence to this world, and therefore the condition of this world has no impact or effect on the kingdom of God. And that's important to remember. Because many people live in this abject fear of Marxism as if it were a match for the kingdom of God. It is not. It is evil. It is antithetical to the gospel. It is an idolatrous, power-hungry, state-worshipping, God-hating system. And as such, it always has and always will, like Dagon, fall prostrate before the throne of Christ. All nations that forget God shall be turned into hell. The rulers of the nations conspire against the Lord and against His Christ, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. Christ rules with a rod of iron, and He will conquer all His enemies, either by cross or by sword. Now, to apply this to us personally, our assurance of salvation does not rest in ourselves, in our works, in our faith, in our growth, or in our sanctification but in the finished work of Christ on the cross. It is true that those whom Christ saves, He also purifies and sanctifies. Remember what we read earlier. It is God who gives the increase. But, all that notwithstanding, Jesus by Himself purged us from our sins. He didn't need our help to do it. He didn't need our help to save us. And He doesn't need our help to maintain our salvation. We need never fear because the success of the Gospel in our lives lies in the hands of the only one capable of wielding that kind of power. Christ's rule over all things has great bearing on our Christian lives. Our growth in our faith, our growth in sanctification, 
does not lie in our power. Christ rules over all things, including our growth in grace. And this should give us great confidence, comfort, and assurance. As much as we foul things up, as often as we stumble, as frequently as we transgress the commands of God in thought, word, and deed, if things were up to us, we'd all perish. Scripture says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Scripture says, for we all stumble in many things. In whose hands is your salvation better entrusted? Yours or Christ's? You want practical application? You want encouragement? Here you have it. It is God who began the good work in you, and it is He who will complete it. Your sinfulness was not a, or weakness was not a hindrance to God in calling you to Himself. And so neither will it be a hindrance to Him keeping you. Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of My hands. And now we come to our second point. Christ's superiority over God's messengers was demonstrated in His state of humiliation. Now the text that Paul quotes is, he, is uh, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. Now here we have a very clear demonstration of a principle that I have uh, repeatedly asserted, namely, that the Psalms, just like the Law and the Prophets, speak of Christ. He's always either the speaker or the one spoken of. And in this case, he's the one spoken of. Now when you read Psalm 8 as it stands, it would appear to be speaking of mankind in general. But we have here in Hebrews 2 the Holy Spirit's own interpretation of the psalm. Now there are again a couple of things that we need to clarify in order to understand the application of the psalm to the argument at hand. The first thing to remember is that the word angel literally just means messenger. So it doesn't necessarily mean a heavenly messenger. In fact, we saw last week how the angel in question was Moses as the messenger or the instrument through whom God gave the law. Secondly, the phrase, made a little lower, refers to a specific short period of time. That adverb, little, means a short time. And so a literal reading of this phrase would be, lower for a little while. And that helps us understand that this is referring to Christ's state of humiliation. Now, when we use that phrase, state of humiliation, we're referring to the low condition wherein Christ, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. Jesus' state of humiliation is the central theme of Hebrews. Thirdly, we need to understand how Christ was made lower than God's Old Testament messengers, even if only for a little while. Now, there may be several ways we could answer that question, but it appears to me that the greatest way in which Christ, in his state of humiliation, was made lower than the messengers of the Old Testament was that he never had the universal recognition of the people. When we read Exodus and Numbers, for instance, we frequently find the children of Israel disobeying and disrespecting Moses and his divine commission. When we read the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, we find the people of Israel rebelling against David's right to the throne. When we read the prophets, we find people asking for a, the word of God when it's clear that they have no intention of obeying it. But, despite the fact that some of the people disobeyed Moses, despite the fact that some of the people bristled under the rule of their kings, 
despite the fact that the people were less than honest in seeking God's will from the prophets, nevertheless, these men were universally recognized for what they were. Some people may have wanted to remove David from the throne, but even they acknowledged him as their king. Even if they didn't like him, they knew who and what he was. Even when the people complained against Moses, in their very disobedience, they were recognizing his position as the leader of the people in the Exodus. Even though some people ask the prophets of God for God's word, even when they had no intention of actually following it, they still, even by this disingenuous act, acknowledge that man's status as a prophet of the Lord. But Jesus never had that level of acceptance. Jesus had his 12 apostles. He had large crowds who followed him, but they were fickle followers at best. Many who had thronged his preaching and witnessed his miracles shouted, Crucify! when push came to shove. Of the leaders of the people, we only know of two men who believed in Jesus, and they feared man more than God and kept their belief to themselves. I'm referring to Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Now, related to this fact, Paul anticipates an objection to the language of Psalm 8. If God has put all things in subjection to Christ, why doesn't it look like it? In fact, I think that this would have really hit home with the original recipients of this epistle. They might be tempted to ask, look, if everything you're saying about Jesus is true, why are we being persecuted by the people to whom these great promises were made? Now, it seems to me that Paul is the best person to answer that question because at one point in his life, people like the recipients of this epistle had no fiercer enemy than Paul himself. Now, if Jesus had subdued a man like Paul, who by his own admission once breathed out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, then certainly they could have had confidence in the power of Jesus to conquer all his and their enemies. But the objection, I think, needs a little bit more handling. And Paul acknowledges that, as yet, not all things are made fully uh, subject to him. And the answer to this objection is that, though this universal dominion does not appear to us yet, what Christ has passed through guarantees its eventual fulfillment. Christ has passed through death and has been exalted to the highest state of honor. What appears to be lacking now will be completed. And again, this goes back to the point that even in his state of humiliation, Jesus accomplished by himself that which no sacrifice, temple, altar, incense, prophet, priest, or king of the Old Testament could have ever dreamed of accomplishing. And therefore, even if things don't yet appear to be completely in subjection to Christ, we shouldn't doubt that this condition will be remedied. What is left is far smaller than what he has accomplished already. And what he has already accomplished, he did in his state of humiliation. What remains to be done, he is doing in his state of exaltation. If Jesus could conquer the power of sin and death while beaten beyond recognition and dying in agony upon a cross, what can he do now? that he is exalted to his rightful place on the throne of the universe. And that brings us to our third point, that all things are subject to his reign of grace. I want to return briefly to that for a little while. 
The fascinating thing to me in this passage is that Paul shows us how Jesus accomplished so great a salvation, how he fulfilled all the promises of God, and by himself atoned for the sins of the elect during the little while that he lived in a lower state than God's other messengers. Paul is showing us just how great Jesus really is. If even in his state of humiliation, a state lower than all the messengers of God in the Old Testament, if even in that state, he could by himself purge our sins and work so great a salvation, imagine what he can do in his state of exaltation. If we picture Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Almighty God, it's easy to think of Jesus subduing, ruling, and defending us, restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. Just before Jesus ascended, Jesus commanded His apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And He appealed to His resurrection authority to give this charge. All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. And in Acts 1, Jesus repeats this charge. And then Luke says, While they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, we see the ascension from the other side. In other words, Acts records the ascension from the viewpoint of heaven. Daniel 7 records it from the, uh, I'm sorry, from the viewpoint of earth. And Daniel 7 records it from the viewpoint of heaven. And Daniel writes, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus was taken out of the sight of the disciples in a cloud, and Daniel sees him coming to heaven in a cloud. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one that shall not be destroyed. Now again, it's easy for us to think of Jesus subduing, ruling and defending us, restraining and conquering all his and our enemies, if we think of him as he is now, seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus did all these things as much when he was the babe in the manger and the innocent sufferer on the cross as he does now that he is exalted in his glory. It is easy to believe that God on his throne conquers evil and rules over the affairs of men. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus was doing this even in his state of humiliation. And that's the point of the repeated references in our text to Psalm 8. Now, verse 9 is kind of an elaborate sentence, but the point of it is that we see the powerful work of redemption which Christ has accomplished by His death, and He accomplished this work of God's grace during that little while that He was lower. Neither David nor Solomon, with all their great wealth and power, could save God's people from their sins. They couldn't even save themselves from falling into temptation. Jesus saved us while he was in a condition so low that he calls himself a worm and no man. Now we need to define the word grace because it won't do a lot of good talking about the greatness of God's grace if we aren't agreed on what the word grace actually even means. Grace, as it is used in Scripture, means God's particular, unmerited saving favor. It is particular. God doesn't just throw it around. 
it is granted to those whom he has eternally decreed or willed to save. It is unmerited. That means it is not earned. Indeed, it cannot be earned. And it is saving. All recipients of God's grace are saved. The Bible never, ever uses the term grace in any other sense but with regard to salvation. There is no such thing as a grace of God that does not save. In both his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation, Jesus rules over all things with a view to the salvation of his people. We acknowledge this in the answer to question one of our catechism, which says that all things must be subservient to my salvation. In everything that God brings into our lives, the blessings and the crosses that we experience, in sickness and health and riches and poverty, yea, in all things, Christ is administering His grace, His particular, unmerited, saving favor. Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, in the general view of man, what's the worst thing that can happen to a person? Or better yet, what's the one thing all men fear? Death, right? And our text tells us that even death is ruled by Christ as a tool of His grace. In Romans 8, 38-39, we read, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the passages that we have studied in Hebrews have repeatedly asserted the supremacy of Jesus over all things, including angels and civil powers. And this Romans passage puts death right at the top of that list. We have no say over our birth or our death. We're passive in those things. No one has ever conceived himself. And every day, death comes upon men without notice or warning. Incidentally, that's why murder and suicide are so evil. They're an attempt to usurp God's sovereign right over life and death. 1 Samuel 2.6 says, God kills and God makes alive. Human attempts to manipulate life and death are evil because they're attempts at claiming sovereignty and seizing control over God's jurisdiction. But back to our text. It tells us that Jesus reigns over life and death. And for the believer, what greater comfort can there be? What is thy only comfort in life and death? With body and soul, both in life and death, I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to Jesus because He suffered death for me to make me a recipient of God's grace. And now because I belong to Him, not even a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Heavenly Father. And this is what our catechism cites as the source and cause of our assurance of salvation. It's not our progress in sanctification, as important as that is. It's not our holiness, as important as that is. It is not our maturity compared with other Christians. It is only the perfect obedience of Christ, His atoning death, and His victorious resurrection. The success of the Gospel in the world, and the success of the Gospel in my and your life, has not been entrusted to men or to angels. It resides in the only safe place there is, the hands of Christ.